0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
1: I want to read Hebrews chapter 12, and it starts off with this important word, therefore. I've heard more than one person say that when you see that word, therefore, you need to go back and find out what it's there for. (laughs) Yeah. And what it's there for refers to the entire preceding chapter, the faith chapter, over and over, by faith, by faith, by faith. And the last few verses are are just so, what more shall I say, writes the writer. Time would fail me to tell, and he lists a bunch of names and a bunch of events, people who conquered kingdoms through faith, etc., and then there were the ones, after women received their, their dead back by resurrection, there were those who were tortured Refusing to accept release, there were those who were mocked and flogged, chained, imprisoned, etc. And verse 39 says, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire.
2: have a plan. And if God says the same, we will finish the book of Revelation this morning. Which Jeff is way too enthusiastic about. <laughs> but that is the plan. The last chapter of the book of Revelation is really John summing up the whole of the letter, coming to his conclusions. And there are two particular things that I want to point out. One is that he is insisting that he has actually witnessed all these things. He is an eyewitness to these things. And you really can't get a better source than the eyewitness, somebody who actually experienced what John is writing about. John has been speaking very much like the Old Testament prophets, He's speaking like Isaiah. He's making so many allusions to the things that Ezekiel has written. He's made so many direct references to the things we learned from Daniel. He's speaking like an Old Testament prophet. Back in chapter 21, he quotes that God told him, write these things down because these words are faithful and true. He's going to repeat that in chapter 22. So he is saying, despite the fact that what I have told you in this letter seems almost incomprehensible, even though I have told you of phenomenal judgment and overwhelming grace, these are the very words of God. And God himself told me to write these things down and send them to you because these are faithful and true words. And I'm the one who saw it. He started this letter by saying, it's me, John, I'm the apostle. You know who I am. I am also your brother in the tribulations of this life. And then he said that he heard from an angel and that these things were told to him specifically by Christ, write these things down, send them to the seven churches of Asia So John is insisting that not only is he the eyewitness, but that the things he is saying are prophetic, and that God himself is the spirit of prophecy that permeates the whole of the Bible. He is just simply continuing on in that prophetic speaking. So let's start at Revelation 22, verse 1. John says, and Kai, he's continuing his sequence again, and he showed me a river of water, the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Okay, that is Ezekiel language, but it's actually Garden of Eden language, because he is about to describe. The tree of life in verse 2. It says, in the middle of its street and on either side of the river, there was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. It's a jam-packed sentence. So now we have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis to understand the tree of life and the significance of the tree of life. There were two prominent trees in the Garden of Eden, two that are mentioned specifically. One was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they were told, don't eat from that. But they also had ready access, unlimited access to the tree of life. And we read that the reason that God cast them out of the garden after they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the reason that God put them out of the garden was to keep them from the tree of life. Had they continued eating from the tree of life, then God would have been wrong when he said the wages of sin was going to be death. He told Adam, the day you eat it, you're going to die. And so he separated them from the tree of life. Here we are in Revelation 22, reading that there is this river of flowing water coming from the throne of God. It goes out over, well, it says street in the NASB. It's the word platus. It's a word that means a wide, flat area, kind of like a plateau. It is translated street here, but it is a wide area that this river of water is flowing through. In a minute, we're going to see that all the residents of New Jerusalem have unfettered access to the water from this river. But more importantly, the river itself is feeding the tree of life. On either side of the river was the tree of life, and it bears 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Ezekiel 47.12 predicts this very thing. John is not saying anything new or unique. It's already been written by the prophets. Here's what Ezekiel 47.12 says. By the river, on its bank, on one side and on the other will grow all kinds of trees for food and their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their waters flow from the sanctuary of God and their fruit will be for food and their leaves will be for healing. John just simply said in the middle of the street on either side of the river was the tree of life. Bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, just like Ezekiel said, and the leaves of the trees are for healing, just like Ezekiel said. Importantly, it is healing for the nations, for the ethnos, the very same people that Satan had been deceiving so that for the thousand years he was put into the abyss and he was Cast into the bottomless pit, a seal was set over him specifically so that he could not deceive the nations. Same exact word. Now that he is out of the way, now that he is out of the picture, now that he is in the lake of fire, God sets about healing the nations, restoring the nations, making the Gentile nations healthy again because they are living with the new Jerusalem and with Christ himself As their son. So he showed me this river of the water of life, clear as crystal, and it was coming from the throne of God and from the Lamb in the middle of its wide open flat area. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit and yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. If you go back and look at Revelation 2.7, that is the very beginning of John writing to the seven churches of Asia. And one of the things that is promised to the church at Ephesus is he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches To him who overcomes, that means to him who prevails, who continues in the faith, the one who gets the victory, to the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So all we're seeing here in chapter 22 is the culmination of what Jesus promised the church all the way back in chapter 2. These promises Permeate the whole rest of the book of Revelation. Let me just remind you of those promises that we read more than a year ago. I know we've been in the book of Revelation for a very long time. The promises go like this to the church at Smyrna He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Where did we read about the second death? Chapter 20. So again, those are just the culmination of promises that Jesus made to the churches. To Pergamum, he said, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give him of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except him who receives it. To Thyatira, he wrote, he who overcomes... And he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter are broken into pieces. As I also have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To Sardis he said, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. That's what we read about in chapter 19, the white garments that we would receive at the marriage supper of the Lamb. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To Philadelphia, he said, I come quickly. I'm going to take a moment and drill this into your head, because we're going to see a lot of this language of coming quickly in chapter 22. And sometimes people look at that language of soon and quickly, and they say, well, that meant that Jesus, after he ascended into heaven, was promising that he would be right back. He was going to turn around and be back within that first generation. The word that is translated, I come quickly, is the word taku in Greek. And what it means is suddenly. In other words, Jesus is saying, once this process begins, it's all going to happen very rapidly, and I am going to appear at a time that you're not expecting it. In fact, in a moment, we're going to look at Matthew 24, where he says that exact thing, that he's going to appear suddenly. And that's what this word taku means. To Philadelphia, he said, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. It's exactly what we're reading about right now, the culmination of these promises that Jesus has made to the churches the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I'll write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To Laodicea he promised, he who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So all of these things that we see finally coming to fruition in chapter 19 and 20 and 21 and 22 are all the promises that Jesus has made to those who overcome, to those who remain faithful despite the difficulties and the trials of this world, despite all the temptations that will try to drag you away from the things of Christ. If you hang on, you're going to be part of... The river of the waters of life, access to the tree of life, have a new name written on you, be a part of the temple of God, and be in the new Jerusalem. Jesus promised all that. That's what we're witnessing here in chapter 22. Because Jesus, get this right, keeps his word. I just wanted to put a fine point on that. Verse 3 of chapter 22, and there shall no longer be any curse. Okay, so here we are back in Genesis again. The curse for Adam was, the day you eat of it, you die. Mm-hmm. And then he and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then thorns infested the ground, and things began dying. And that curse has been with us ever since. That curse has not been lifted. If you want to test that theory, just don't die. But since death so far has a perfect one-for-one ratio going, everybody gets one, that means the curse is still present with us. But here in the New Jerusalem, no more curse, which is why God could promise There'd be no more death, no more sickness, no more tears. God himself would wipe away every tear because the curse of death has finally been removed because Jesus is going to conquer every enemy of his and the final enemy is death. And get this right, death is still an enemy and death is still rampaging through humanity and Christ is going to Conquer utterly and completely, swallow up death in life, eternal life. And there will no longer be a curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his bondservants, that's that word, do loss. It's a word that's best translated as slaves. It's just not politically correct in this day and age in America to say the word slave. But it is the word slave. His bondservants will indeed serve him. So when I look at, like, Isaiah, and he writes that he saw God high and lifted up. Or when I read Ezekiel, and he's by the river Chebar, and he has that vision of God with that chariot of clouds, with wheels within wheels, full of eyes, and those magnificent visions where God is sitting on a throne with an emerald rainbow behind him, voice like thunder. I think, how did Ezekiel live through that moment of seeing that vision and write it down? That had to have been overwhelming, well, the end result of the story of our redemption is that God himself on his throne and the lamb sitting in his right hand are going to be there in our midst and we are going to have face-to-face, person-to-person contact with him. We're all going to be in the presence of God continually and we will serve him. We think that we're living pretty Christian we think, well, we're, we're serving God. I'm serving God. Because maybe you fed a hungry guy or something. i service to God. But the truth is, we don't know what it is yet to be utterly and completely bond-slave to God in continual service to him forever. But that is our destiny. That is our purpose for being. God is in the enterprise of glorifying himself. And that is why he created Everything, including Steve. Because he made us for the purpose of glorifying himself in demonstrating his phenomenal grace in saving somebody like Steve so that he could get all the glory in having someone like Steve worshiping him, serving him, being bond slave to him. Always remember, life is not about you and your ego, and whether you get enough stuff. Life is about God glorifying himself. And that's why you're here. And you are going to serve that function and that purpose because he is the sovereign God, and he's going to bring you all the way to the glory he has promised you for his own reasons, by his own will, for his own purposes. Got it? Got it. There will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the lamb shall be in it and his bond servants shall serve him and they shall see his face face to face with God and you don't fry. I mean, what a magnificent thing to stand in the presence of the Holy One who is described at this very moment. As the one who is so pure, so right, so holy, the stars and the planets flee away from him. He has encased himself in a light that no man approaches. The description of God all the way through the Bible, very much like what Steve read this morning out of the book of Hebrews, the warning that while God was on the holy mountain talking to Moses, that if even an animal touched the foot of the mountain, the animal had to be killed because the mountain itself was holy because God was above it. You don't want to approach that God. You don't want to burst into his presence and go, hey, it's me and it's all about me and look at me. And I mean, that's just an awesome, frightening picture of God. And yet we will ultimately be accepted and loved by him. We can run to the throne of grace crying, Abba, Father, and we will see him face to face. Astounding. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. That shows ownership. A minute ago, we were called slaves, and he is going to have his name written on us, marking us for all eternity. And there shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have need of a light, of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them. He shall light them, and they shall reign forever and ever. So there's the promise of eternal life, ruling and reigning with Christ and serving our God and having his name on our foreheads, seeing him face to face and being ever illumined by him. We use the language of illumination a lot in Christianity. We say that those who are in sin are in darkness. And then he gives us the light so that we can see. We will ever live in that enlightenment. We will ever live in the illumination, not only of the knowledge of Christ, but the presence of Christ. These are pretty good promises so far. Yep. And he said to me, here's that witnessing stuff I was talking about a moment ago, and he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirit of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. So, John is arguing that he's completely in line with the prophets, the Old Testament prophets and their vision of the future to come. He's saying, I'm just reiterating, I'm just confirming by the very word of God that the things that the prophets have already written actually have to come true. These things must come about, and just because Christ came and died and left the planet, It didn't do away with or negate any of those promises. Those promises are still good. Sixty years after Jesus ascended, John is saying, this is still the spirit of the prophets. And that spirit belongs to God. And these promises that the prophets have made are still valid and still good. And God is faithful to his word. These words are faithful. These words are true And Yahweh, the God of the spirit of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. Now, a minute ago, I told you the word taku, T-A-C-H-U in English letters. And that word means to come suddenly, to come quickly. Here, John writes that these things must shortly take place, it is the word takos in the Greek language. Same basic root word. In fact, if you look up takos in vines or in uh, strongs, one of the definitions given for takos is suddenly, quickly. So what he is saying is not, I'll be right back. I'm ascending now. But as soon as I get to heaven, I'm going to come right back within your generation, and I'm going to accomplish all these things. What he is saying is, once I do this, it's going to be sudden, it's going to be rapid, it's going to be surprising, and it's going to move quickly. Here, let's let Jesus say it. Turn to Matthew 24 for a second. Matthew 24, keep your finger there in Revelation. Revelation. This is the way that Jesus describes it. I'm going to start reading at verse 32, and we'll read down to verse 39. Now learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, then you know that summer is near. Okay, he's talking to people who live in an agricultural culture. And this would be a truism, even though he's saying it's a parable. He's saying when you see the leaves starting to bud, which the leaves here in Middle Tennessee are beginning to do even now because they're so confused that we've had such a warm winter. It's way too early for them to be budding. But when you see that happening, you know that that's the end of the winter season and the beginning of the spring season. So through observation, you can read the signs of the times. Learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see all these things recognize that he is near, he is right at the door. Okay, what are all these things that Jesus is talking about? Well, at the beginning of chapter 24, his disciples have said to him, what is going to be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And he has then told them that there's going to be a time of continual tribulation, this time of Israel's trouble. And there's going to be wars, there's going to be rumors of wars, there's going to be earthquakes, famines, floods, Earthquakes in diverse places. There's going to be pestilences. And then he says, those things are just birth pangs, but the end is not yet. Now he's starting to describe what the end is going to look like. And he says, when you see all those things happening, you know he's right at the door. Now, you don't know exactly what day or hour he's going to come back but it's time. The same way you can look at the budding of a tree and say, okay, spring is here, summer's coming. The same way you can see these things happening and say, he must be coming soon. I don't know exactly when, but all of these signs are pointing to it. Even so, you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. And truly I say to you, This generation is the NASB rendering of it. It's genea in the Greek. It is the word that lays at the root of genealogy. Genea means people of a common descent, people who share a common heritage. In other words, he is promising the Israelites that God is going to remain faithful to them as they endure this time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. This genea, The Israelites, the nation of Israel, will not pass away until all these things have taken place. It's perfectly in keeping with what all the prophets have said about the time of trouble, such as never was or ever would be again. It was a time of Jacob's trouble, but he will be delivered through it. It's exactly what Daniel says. It's exactly what Jeremiah continues to say. Jesus is simply confirming that. Truly I say to you, this genea will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. There's that verification yet again that the word of God must come true. It has to happen. These words do not pass away. But even though you can know it's right at the door, even though you're reading the budding of the tree, and you know the next season is close, even though, as he said in verse 33, you recognize that he's near right at the door. Verse 36 says, but of the exact day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the sun, but the Father alone knows the exact moment when he's going to invade human history again. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. And now he's going to describe in what way it's going to be like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage, so they were doing the stuff of life. They're making deals, they're buying, they're selling. They got up that morning and did the same stuff they always do. Marrying, giving in marriage, that means planning for the future, looking forward to families. They're doing the same stuff they've always done. And in Noah's case, they woke up that morning, continued their lives, and rain fell. And they were all wiped out, and nobody saw it coming. So Jesus says they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus compared it to the Noaic flood and the destruction of everybody when they didn't see it coming. And now he has said, I'm coming quickly. I'm coming suddenly. I'm coming very rapidly. At a time when you don't expect it, when you're getting up and just doing your life, when people on the planet are going to be marrying, given in marriage, buying, selling, just doing their lives, he's suddenly going to appear. No one knows that exact day or hour, but you can tell when it's getting close. And it kind of feels like it's getting close. I just thought I'd throw that in there. So pay attention is the point. Okay, so back to Revelation. That is what John is getting at when he uses these words, taku and takos, that are translated quickly and soon, they are perfectly in league with what Jesus has said in his parable, that when he comes back, he's coming back suddenly, he's coming back quickly. So verse 7 of chapter 22 of Revelation, and behold, I am coming quickly. There's that word taku again. So blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. So that's why we've been taking so much time and reading the book of Revelation over the course of the last one year plus And going into all the detail and looking back at the prophets and what they have predicted. Seeing how the book of Revelation corresponds to the whole rest of the Bible. Because there is an inherent blessing included in the Bible. Right at the beginning of the book of Revelation we're told that there is a blessing to those who hear it and to those who read it. Behold I am coming rapidly, suddenly. So blessed is the one who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And here is John arguing that he's the eyewitness. Verse 8, And I, John, am the one who heard it, and I saw these things. And when I heard, and when I saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. Okay, so when the denizens of heaven are telling you that there is only one focus, one object of your worship, you really ought to pay attention. Because spirituality runs rampant in the world right now. Can I get a witness? There are plenty of people who will tell you, I don't really read the Bible, Um, I don't go to church, I don't consider myself a Christian, you know, but I'm spiritual. I'm so spiritual. Well, then they get off into angels. There are so many books written about angels, how to get angels to do your bidding, how to command angels. There's so much angelology in the world these days. Well, here's John, who actually bowed down in front of an angel, and the angel was quick to say, no, no, I don't deserve worship. I'm a fellow servant like you are, and we all collectively serve God. The purpose of angels is that they are ministering spirits, says the writer of Hebrews. They are ministering spirits to the church. But they are created beings as well. They are not God. The word angelos simply means messenger. They're carrying messages from God to us so that we can know more about God. But they are not objects of worship. And they themselves testify, worship God. He said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours. And of your brethren, the prophets, very interesting that John there tied himself to the prophets of old, again confirming that the spirit of God, that is the spirit of prophecy, is simply saying the same thing over and over and over again, whether it was Daniel or Ezekiel or Isaiah or any of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, anybody who talked about the eschatology to come, John is just continuing in that same vein and confirming all of that. Because he is brethren with the prophets. So I'm a fellow servant of yours, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. So worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this book. That's really interesting. Uh, If you read the book of Daniel, at the end of the book of Daniel he's told specifically seal up the book because these words are for the time of the end. John is told don't seal it up because these are the words for the time of the end and that time is near. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time, the specific moment is coming, it's near. And then Verse 11, you can read many, many commentaries, and you will get many, many different opinions about what's being said here. I will give you the two most likely readings of it. What it says is, let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and let the one who is filthy still be filthy, and let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. That either means Jesus is going to appear on the stage of history again so suddenly, so quickly, this whole tacos idea, that he is just going to show up so quickly that there's not going to be time for anybody to clean up their act. Whatever you are, whoever you are at that moment, that's it. That might be the reading that the one who is wrong will do wrong still, and the one who's filthy will be filthy at the moment that Jesus appears. Or, this might be yet another validation of what we've been seeing all the way through the book of Revelation, what we see indeed all the way through the Bible, which is that God is so sovereign that he's in charge of who gets saved, who gets elected, and who remains in their sin. Because unless God elects you, unless God chooses you, unless he calls you and redeems you, unless he changes you from within, you're going to do nothing but remain in your sin. And you're going to die in your sin and you're going to be judged in your sin. Were it not for God sovereignly deciding in your favor. In which case, this is just another declaration of the absolute sovereignty of God. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who is filthy still be filthy, and let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and let the one who is holy still keep himself holy, whether that is referring to the sovereignty of God or the sudden appearance of Christ, it's clear that you are what you are, you are who you are, and if God doesn't help you, what you are is going to condemn you forever. Verse 12. Behold, I am coming. What a surprise. Taku, suddenly. I'm coming with no advance notice. Behold, I am coming quickly. By the way, how many times has Jesus said that now? He keeps repeating it. It seems to be an idea he wants to plant in your brain. That you need to be aware. You need to pay attention. You need to live your life in such a way That you are walking as one of his servants, one of his holy ones, one of his saints, one of his elect, because at any moment he could come back. And as he said, blessed are people who, when their master comes back, finds them doing what he assigned them to do. Wouldn't it be great if Jesus came back when you were at one of your best moments? Wouldn't that be great? You're, like, you're you're out there doing the best stuff you've ever done in your life. And it's like, hey, it's Jesus. Hey, you know, I was just being really Christian. Good timing. Well done, you. Of course, there's very little chance that's going to happen. He's going to come back when we're being busy being human, when we're being our natural selves. It's a good thing that grace prevails. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me. That word reward is the judgment that he's going to pass out. To the good, it's going to be a good reward. To the evil, it's going to be judgment that they earned. They're going to be responsible. Behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to his deeds, according to what he has done. I am the Alpha. Alpha the first letter of the Greek alphabet. I am the Omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. I am the first. I am the last. I am the beginning. I am the end. Jesus emphasizing, I'm everything. I'm the beginning. I'm the end. I'm the top. I'm the bottom. I'm everything in between. I am the first and the last. I am the Alpha. I am the Omega. I'm the one who set all of this in motion, and it culminates in my glory Jesus speaking of himself as being the sovereign God. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. The city of Jerusalem and its 12 gates. We're going to have the ability to come and go in and out of the city through the gates. We're going to see God face to face We're going to be ever in the presence of Christ himself, who is the Alpha and the Omega. And then he says, blessed to those who wash their robes. And where do we get these clean white robes? They're given to us by God at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's just grace and grace. And then there's some more grace. And it's topped off with grace, with a heaping helping of grace. And then there's some grace piled on. Then there's a dump truck full of grace. And there's Anyway. It's a good thing, too. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside the city are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons, and the murderers, and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. There's a lot said in the Bible about your tongue and your lies and being honest with people. We looked at that list last week, so I won't delve into it again this week. But outside, outside the city, out in the outer darkness, separated from the light of God, Are all the dogs and sorcerers and immoral persons, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices lying, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel, my angelos, my messenger, to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. Both of those are references to Old Testament prophecies about him. Isaiah is the one who calls him the bright and morning star. The covenant made with David says that David's greater son is going to sit on the throne of David, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. So here's Jesus saying again, all prophecy culminates in me. But he said that while he was here on the planet. He talked about how not a word of the law and the prophets, that phraseology, the law and the prophets, is the whole of the Old Testament. And he says, not one jot, not one tittle is going to go away until it's all been fulfilled. He said, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. So the whole of the Old Testament is ultimately leading to the appearance of Christ, the establishment of the kingdom of Christ, the establishment of the new Jerusalem. And he identifies himself as the root and the offspring of David. He's the one that the prophets were all pointing to He is the bright and the morning star, and the spirit of God, and the bride, the church. We all say, come, and let the one who hears this word say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. That sounds like what we read last week. Everyone who thirsts, come you to the water. You that have no money, come, buy, eat. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let everyone who wishes take of the water of life without cost. Verse 18, he starts wrapping up his letter, and he says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues that are written in this book. Oh, you don't want that. There's some bad plagues going on in this book. This is John's way of saying, if you make a copy and you give it to somebody else, make sure you're saying what I said. Don't get clever with it. Don't decide to add a little bit to it. I worry sometimes, if I'm being honest, I worry sometimes about some of the preaching I've heard from the book of Revelation. because It sure seems like there's people adding a bunch of stuff and then eliminating a bunch of stuff where you go, well, where's, where's the rest of it? Because verse 19 says, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. So this book is full of prophecy, God-glorifying prophecy, prophecy that is leading to the ultimate glorification of Christ, and that we who hear the words of this prophecy, who read and take to heart everything that God has told us, we who have faith in Jesus Christ, are going to be participants in the glory that he has laid up for us since before the foundation of the world, that our names are written down in the Lamb's book of life. What, my point is, why would you want to change that? Why would you want to eliminate anything that's written in the book of Revelation considering what the culmination of it is, the whole purpose of it? People get scared by it because there's a lot of judgment language in it. There's a lot of dark days talked about in the book of Revelation and people get worried about it but God is just as glorious in the dark days as he is when you're walking in the light and it is all about the glorification of God and you are not big enough to change that. Don't change the wording, don't change the thinking, don't change the theology and if you do, John includes a threat. That God will take away your part from the tree of life and from the holy city. Now, a minute ago in verse 17, you had the spirit of God and the bride saying, come, come to the water of life, come drink freely. So now John joins that chorus in verse 20. He who testifies these things which is Jesus. Jesus testified. He verified the reality of all this. He's the one who said, not a jot, not a tittle. Everything is going to be fulfilled, and I'm the one that's fulfilling it. Jesus himself who testified to the reality of these things, who sent his angels so that John could write these things, so that the church could know these things, that one says, yes, I am coming. Here it is again. Quickly. I'm coming suddenly. My appearance is right at the door. Pay attention. Live accordingly. Your Lord, your Savior, the judge is coming back. And behold, I come quickly. But I love John's response to that. Because to the whole rest of the world, the idea of Christ cracking the sky invading world history again coming and being a judge is there anything more frightening that's why people don't want to think about it that's why people don't often teach the book of Revelation or the eschatological and prophetic parts of the Bible because the idea that Jesus is suddenly going to appear as a judge and send people into outer darkness that's frightening, frightening, frightening but to we who love Christ that's great news Because I've enjoyed as much of this life as I can take. And I can't wait for the whole new body thing. Oh, that's a good day. Micah's young and strong. He doesn't get the new body thing. He's like, this one's fine. But the whole idea of Christ returning to take us home so that we can live in eternal splendor with him and finally worship him in spirit and truth, that is such an attractive and wonderful idea that even though Jesus says, yes, I am coming back quickly, John responds, yes. That's the amen. Amen. I mean, all the way back with Abraham in the book of Genesis. God made promises to Abraham, and when you read that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, that's the word amon. That's the Hebrew word from which we get amen. What it means is you agree with God and say, yeah, yeah, you do that. That's why sometimes it says, verily, verily, it shall be so. Okay, that's just an old English way of saying, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, do it. Yes, I'm coming back quickly, suddenly. It'll be like the days of Noah. It's going to be massive judgment. But to those people who are anticipating and loving his return, to those who have the blessed hope of Christ coming back again, to us, we all say, amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Do it. Appear. Keep all your promises, and my faith will finally be sight. Accomplish all the things that the prophets have said you're going to accomplish. Bring it to its full fruition, because in the end, you get all the glory, and you get all the honor, and I'm completely on your side. So you're coming back quickly, and you're coming back as a judge, and your reward is in your hand, and your reward for me is wonderful. Come on. Anybody prayed that one lately? I pray that a lot. Come on. (laughs) Just come on. As soon as people get to name their own gender and then get upset with you if you don't pronoun them right. Come on. (laughs) I'm ready to go. There's so much nuttiness in the world right now. But behold, he's right at the door. You don't know the day or the hour, but he's coming back Amen, come, Lord Jesus. He ends his letter by saying, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. He doesn't mean all everybody. He means all of you in the churches, all of you people who I'm writing to. It is so vitally important that the grace of God be with you. Because the grace of God will carry you through these things. The grace of God will get you all the way home. The grace of God is going to get you to New Jerusalem. The grace of God is going to allow you to see God face to face. The grace of God, the undeserved merit and kindness that God gives to you. Things you don't deserve. What do you deserve? Well, you deserve judgment. What do you deserve? You deserve hell forever. What do you deserve? You deserve for God to be very unhappy with you. And he's merciful and kind and long-suffering. Thank goodness for the long-suffering part. That his love never changes. His loving kindness is eternal. And he does it all for us on the basis of grace, 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 and grace. We talk a lot about grace here at a sovereign grace church. At Grace Christian Assembly, we talk a lot about grace because grace permeates the Bible, because grace is the only hope you and I have. And grace ultimately leads to the ultimate glory of God in Christ in the salvation of his people. And we are the very fortunate people who get to take part in that. And it is all by God's grace. Yes. And I think I'm done. That's the book of Revelation. In two weeks, we're going to talk about Christianity 101. We're going back to the basics out of the book of Galatians. I'll see you then. See you there.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.